Well, good morning. I have uh, enjoyed worshiping with you. It's been a time of just uh, great fellowship. It's been great uh, songs. I've just really enjoyed our praise and worship this morning. Uh, Kendall really does uh, an outstanding job in, uh, in leading us. Well, happy uh, 4th of July weekend. I hope everybody's had a great weekend. Uh, ours was, was good, except my family set a, a new record for the length of time we've ever sat in traffic in one, you know, one big block of time. Uh, about 12 years ago, we were in Nashville. I was at Livscombe University. I left on a Friday, driving home. I had to do a wedding the next day, and so I had to be there to do the rehearsal dinner, and we sat in Bonnaroo traffic. Those of you that know what Bonnaroo is, those of you that don't, sorry, look it up. That's what, that's what Google's for. But we sat in Bonnaroo traffic for four hours, trying, to, and I almost missed the rehearsal dinner uh, to, to, for this wedding that I'm, you know, it's not like I was just in it, I was preaching it, so I had to be there, it was kind of important. Well, yesterday we broke that record. Yesterday we sat in traffic. Now, keep in mind, 12 years ago we had no children. <laughs> yesterday we definitely had children. And we sat in traffic for five hours. Five, F-I-V-E, five, the same number of fingers you have on the hand. Hours with children. Yes, it was uh, not fun. So uh, what should have been like a, you know, a six, seven-hour trip from Nashville turned into like a 12-hour trip from Nashville. We got in about 8.30 last night. But we made it home, and uh, we were in good spirits. We survived that uh, that long trip, and uh, we're just, uh, we were looking forward to today, looking forward to, to being here with you. Uh, we had a really great week up at, uh, at Lipscomb University at, uh, at Summer Celebration. The, uh, the, the title for the, the conference was uh, Roller Coaster, and uh, you'll see a slide up here in just a second that says uh, Roller Coaster, and it talks about David's wild ride with God. And, you know, we spent that time, or the different speakers and keynotes, they spent their time talking and teaching from basically the life of David. First, uh, first Samuel primarily. Some got into Second Samuel. Some looked at, uh, at some other lives. And uh, anyway, uh, it was just really, really incredible. Uh, we heard some really great uh, keynote speakers. We heard uh, uh, some really great uh, class speakers the worship was just absolutely incredible to be there and just sing with with thousands of people and if you've never been to summer celebration before if you're looking for a like a spiritual shot in the arm just kind of in the middle of the summer then i recommend that to you the cost is is very minimum it's it's usually right around the fourth of july and so go but plan to stay an extra day so you don't sit in traffic for 12 hours driving back uh but it's a it's a great great thing to do. It's a great thing to do with your family. Well, I was asked to be one of the, uh, one of the sort of the breakout session speakers, one of the, the class speakers, and I titled my class, When God Regrets, The Outcome of Rebellion. And what I chose to do is, you know, focus on the life of Saul, because just about everybody there was looking at the life of David, and so we're just kind of getting flooded with David, and so I thought I'd go a different route and look at, look at David's uh, predecessor, look at the life of, of Saul. 
You know, there are, uh, there are two times in the Bible, two times in Scripture, where we are told that God regretted his actions. Often, rebellion leads to, to serious, some, some serious consequences. Now then, you have Saul, who was the first king of Israel. This is a job that, that he did not ask for. But he was anointed by God through the prophet Samuel. He was anointed to be the, the very first king of Israel. Imagine what that must have been like, to be the first king of a, of a nation. Okay? And, and Saul had the hand of God with him and really on him until he chose to kind of do things his own way. And so that's what we want to talk about today. We're going to spend just a few minutes talking about what happens what happens when God regrets. Now then, we will often hear people make a statement, and you may have made this statement before, that, you know, I want to live a life of no regrets. Anybody ever said that? Or at least heard that? Who's heard that? Yeah. Okay, good. More of us. Yeah, we've heard people say that, that I want to live a life of, of, of no regrets, okay? Regret nothing, okay? Uh, now then, uh, you know, there are some people that have regretted their choices in life, uh, like this fellow right here. Uh, he, he may not have any regrets, but I'm pretty sure he's got some regrets, okay? Uh, you know, and, and that's just the way it is. You know, we say, you know, I want to live a life of, of no regrets. But to be completely honest with you, I'm not even sure that that's actually possible. At least for the, the thinking individual. Because we're all human. All right? Because we all blow it. Because we all say things. I mean, how many of us just this week said something in an unguarded moment that we wish we could take back? Anybody else? Yeah. Okay. Everybody, like in that traffic yesterday with millions upon millions of people. And I was a saint. I can't speak for everybody else. But you know, I imagine there are some people that might regret some of their words while we were stuck together in that never-ending traffic. But because we're human, you know, I would say that I'm not quite sure it is possible to completely live a life without regrets. Or at least it's, it's, it's impossible for me. Because I have some regrets in my life. Okay, I have some regrets, and, and some, of them are, some of them are serious, and some of them are not quite so serious. Like some of the not-so-serious ones, I, I think about when, you know, back to, to when I was in high school. And, you know, I, I really, I, I enjoy playing golf. I love to play golf. I'm, I'm not very good at it, but I like to play. Now then, I don't like to pay for playing golf. If I didn't have to pay, I would play a lot more, okay? But I like to play golf, and there are days where I sit back and think, you know, why didn't I play on the golf team in high school? You know, that would have been four years of free golf at nice golf courses, okay, with great equipment and a coach to show me some things. And I look back and think, you dummy, why did you, why did you do that? Why did you give up on that? Why did you not play golf in high school? Or um, last Tuesday was kind of a big day for me in my life. Uh, last Tuesday, I turned 40 years old. Yeah, me too. I can't believe it either. Last Tuesday, I turned 40 years old. And 
to celebrate my birthday, we went to Coyoacan Mexican Restaurant in Quitman. And that happens to be one of my favorite restaurants. Okay? Yes, amen. I like how you amen the restaurant. Nice. Hopefully God will get some amens before we're done here. <laughs> amen? Okay, good. <laughs> but I love that place. The food is so good, and they have this salsa, and it's just great, and these chips, and it's just spicy, and it's good, and they load you up, and they just keep coming with the chips and, and salsa. And then I ordered what I thought was going to be an incredible choice, the Grande Steak Burrito. It was only later that I regretted ordering the Grande Steak Burrito instead of the regular burrito. Because you just walk out, you feel like you have to waddle. I needed somebody to get a wheelbarrow and roll me to the car because you get in a Mexican restaurant and it's just like, here, eat whatever you want to eat. We, we just feed you till you get tired or till you die, you know. And so you have those kind of regrets in life, okay. Now, there's a host of other uh, non-serious regrets that I have that I can think about, but I'm not going to take time to go through those. But there are also some very serious regrets that I have uh, in my life. You know, I, I think about some regrets that I have uh, in, in some of the relationships that I, that I had in my life where uh, I, I, did not, uh, I didn't handle a, maybe a certain situation that way with a relationship, whether it was maybe somebody I was actually related to or a friend or whatnot, and maybe I said some things or, or did some things and maybe didn't quite get a chance to reconcile it or maybe reconciled but the, the friendship couldn't continue. You know, and, and I look back on things like that and I think, you know, I really regret some of my actions during that. Uh, about 10 years ago, I had a, an opportunity in, in my career to get involved with a group of people that were, you know, they're very creative, they're very, uh, very uh, forward thinking, very much involved in ministry, and I was invited to join this group and get in this, this sort of this planning and this, this, this group think, and, uh, you know, for whatever reason, I didn't, I don't know if, if I didn't trust my abilities or uh, didn't believe in myself enough, didn't believe in God enough, and, you know, I, I declined the invitation to join that group. And there were a lot of days where I look back, you know what, I should have trusted God more. I should have believed in the abilities and the gifting that God has given me, and because of that, I, I had that regret that I, that I didn't take that, uh, that opportunity. There have been times in ministry where situations have come up and I have not been as, as gracious as I could have been. Okay, maybe I was having a bad day or, or maybe for whatever reason when I encountered this person, maybe this was you, maybe I didn't have the, the mind and the heart of Christ as I, as I dealt with that situation. And I can look back and say, you know what, I just, I regret that I was not more Christ-like in that situation. Have you ever, you ever felt that way? Am I, surely I'm not the only one. Yeah, you, you feel that way. Okay, I, I think about in, in, in relationship to my brothers, and this is probably, this is a very serious regret that I have. That maybe if I would have lived better, if I would have set a better example for them when I was younger, when I was in high school with, with some of the people that I interacted with and, and hung out with, maybe if I had, had done things differently, then who knows, maybe they would still be here today. You know, that's a regret that I've, I've had to, to live with for for, for, 10, uh, for, uh, for 14 years, just wondering, could I have done something different? But maybe the most serious regret I have comes when, when, when I choose to deliberately disobey God's will. 
When I know what, what he wants me to do, and I just absolutely, 100%, positively choose to do my own thing. Okay, and, and, and that's why I say that, at least for thinking individuals, thinking individuals, maybe, maybe you call yourself Christian, maybe you don't, but if you are at least a, a mindful thinking individual, I say it's probably impossible for us to live a life completely without regret. Well, as I, as I stated a little while ago, there are a, a couple of different places in Scripture where we are told that, uh, that God had regret. Now then, uh, if you're like me, then you know, maybe you've never considered that before. Maybe the, the first time you, you hear that, you might be thinking, you know, that can't be right. You know, how can our good and, and all-powerful and all-knowing and all-wonderful God how can, can God have regret? You know, maybe in, in some ways it sounds a little bit blasphemous. But the fact is, is that it's true. That God did have regret. And the first time we see this is in Genesis chapter 6, in the book of the beginnings, verses 5 through 7, where the writer says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And then notice this, the Lord, say it with me, regretted. The Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth and His heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground for, say it again with me, I regret that I have made them and there we see it right there there's the the first instance when when god reveals regret because human beings were just full of evil and then god looks down and he sees the hearts and he sees the wickedness and he says i regret that i made humans now think about that this is our creator the one who who, who brought life into being the one who created the earth this is the one who created and, and formed us and he says i regret that i made them that's a that's a pretty heavy statement is it not to think about our god the creator having having regret having regret that he made us and then the second time where we see regret in scripture is found in first samuel Chapter 15, verses 10 and 11. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and his commands. There it is again. God regrets and he regrets, this time it's not that he, regre he regretted creating the world, he has regretted that, that he chose Saul to be the king. Now then, there's a, there's a question that, that comes to mind. There's a question that I want us to, to consider for the rest of our time. And, and here it is right here. It is simply this. Why did God regret making Saul the king? You know, why, what, what chose him to make such a, a strong and powerful statement to, to Samuel the prophet that I regret making Saul the king. Well, I think 
for us to, to really understand that, we have to, to back up a little bit in the story. Uh, there was a guy, the, the first keynote of the night on Wednesday, his name is Jonathan Stormont, preaches out in, uh, out in Abilene, Texas. He reminded us on, on Wednesday night that, that God, and maybe you didn't know this or maybe you've forgotten this, but God did not want a king over Israel. Did you know that? Did you know that when God created the nation of Israel, the intent was for them to not have a king? Do you know why? It's because God was their king. Okay? God wanted to be the king of, of Israel. The people, they weren't supposed to be this monarchy. They were supposed to be a royal priesthood. Okay? God wanted to be the one that they looked to, the one that they trusted in, the one who would lead them. Well, they would have these prophets and these judges that would sort of make decisions and inter, intercede for them. And Samuel was, was the last one of these, these judges. Samuel is the one who anoints Saul as king. Samuel is the one who delivers the message to Saul. Samuel is the one who is going to anoint David eventually as king. But as Samuel began, began to get older... He appointed his sons as judges, you know, just kind of bring them right in the, the, the family business. But the problem with Samuel's sons is they were corrupt, okay? They misused their authority. They, they took bribes. You know, unfortunately for us, our, our leaders have outgrown that kind of behavior today, right? Yes, praise God, our, our leaders don't do that today. We've, we've, we've gone past that. But the, the elders of Israel... They come to Samuel and they, they tell him three things. You're old. Your sons are corrupt. And we want a king just like every other nation. That's what they wanted. They began to look around at the, the surrounding nations. And they realize, hey, we're the only one that doesn't have a king. Everybody else, everybody else has a king. Why don't we have a king? Why can't we have a king? And so they look around and they become envious. They become envious of these other nations. And they forfeited their uniqueness. They forfeited the one thing that, that set them apart. They were envious of what other nations had, yet to become just like every other nation, they had to give up what no other nation had. And that was Jehovah God as king. But they couldn't see that. They were blinded by that. They were envious of the of the surrounding nations. And so they gave up their uniqueness. And here's the thing. To my astonishment, maybe to yours too, but to my astonishment, God went along with it. He relented. God was the king, and he said, okay, if you want a king, I'll give you, I'll give you a king. Okay, now God is the creator. Okay, God's prerogative 
trumps everybody's. Okay? Yet God relented. Okay? Now, see, if this was me, if I was God, and I was the king, and people came to me and said, hey, we don't want you as king. We want another king. You know what I'd do? It wouldn't be good. I can tell you that. It wouldn't be good. So aren't you glad that I'm not God? Okay? Because I'm glad you're not either. Okay? Just being honest. Okay? Because we're not qualified to be God. But God, only God in His wisdom, for, for whatever reason, he, he relents. And just like a, a wise parent, He allows them to have what they really wanted, even though it wasn't always in their best interest. You remember when your parents gave you something that really probably wasn't in your best interest? And then later on, they pointed out the lesson of that. They said, you see, this is, this is why that maybe that wasn't such a good thing to happen. Okay, God is this wise parent. He, he relents, and he gave them a king, and they became just like everyone else. And just like everyone else, King Saul, their king, just like everyone else's king, he took their sons and he enlisted them in the army. Just like everyone else's king, he took their sons and he sent them out to his fields to, to plow and to reap and to harvest. Just like everyone else's kings, he appointed the people to make weapons and, and chariots of war. Just like every other king, he took their daughters and he made them become perfumers and cooks and bakers in his palace, in his kingdom. Just like every other king, he took the best of their fields. He took the best of their vineyards. He took the best of their olive orchards. Just like every other king, he took a tenth of their slaves. He took a tenth of their livestock, a tenth of their grain, and a tenth of their produce. And they became just like everyone else. They had forfeited their uniqueness. And so Saul... Saul is, is, is chosen to be the king. What we know about Saul is he was tall and he looked kingly. Okay, he stood head and shoulders above everybody else. And when you looked at him, you said, that's a king. That right there, that is a leader. That is who we want. Saul is, Saul is our guy. And he did some, he did some pretty good things as their king. But he also did some really bonehead things, too. There was this, this place called uh, Gilgal. And at Gilgal, he offered an, an, unlawful, uh, offered an unlawful sacrifice. Um, a sacrifice that, that he wasn't supposed to offer. Now then, Saul wasn't rejected as king, or Saul was rejected as king not specifically because he offered sacrifices. He was rejected as king because he disobeyed a direct command from God. That was given to him through the, the prophet Samuel. Back in chapter 10, Samuel told him, he said, You go down ahead of me to Gilgal, and I will surely come down to you and sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. Okay, so they go down there. They go to Gilgal. 
And they wait the seven days. And you know what they begin to notice? The Philistine army is beginning to muster all around them. And they begin to get uneasy. And the seven days is up, and there's no sign of Samuel. Samuel is, is late. Okay, and they are waiting on Samuel to offer these burnt offerings. Okay, and Saul is looking around, and his own army is getting antsy, and they're beginning to, to start to dissipate. And so what he says is, look, you bring the offering to me. I'll make the offering before the Lord. It'll be fine. And he, and he goes on and, and does this. He does this just before Samuel arrives, and Samuel gets there, and he's just beside himself. In chapter 13, he says, you've done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him to rule over his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And what we see is that the, the penalty for this outright disobedience to a direct command from God was that Saul is not going to continue to be the, the founder of this royal dynasty. While he would still be allowed to, to stay on the throne, his descendants are not going to rule after him. Jonathan is not going to succeed him as the next king. Instead, a man after God's own heart, a, a shepherd boy is going to be the one who, who God puts on his throne. But not yet. So now we come to chapter 15. And we find our, our answer, the rest of our answer, to why God regretted making Saul the king. And it's, it's in chapter 15 that God gives Saul uh, a, a new assignment. God commanded Saul to destroy the Amalekites. I mean, I mean, wipe them out, to just completely destroy them. Men, women, children, livestock, everything, just absolutely wipe them out. Now then, this is one of those, this is one of those episodes of, of total destruction in the Bible that, you know, they're just difficult for us to understand, okay? They're difficult for us to understand, and we don't have time to, to unpack that today. But one thing that we can understand one thing we can recognize is in such episodes, the Israelites were never to take any of the plunder because they weren't in the war for themselves. They were considered to be agents of divine judgment. Okay, so they weren't supposed to be taking any of the, the spoils of, of war. So Saul and his army, they go to the Amalekites. Now then, you, you wonder, why is God picking on the Amalekites? The Amalekites harassed the Israelites, as they were coming up out of Egypt, in fact, you read back up earlier in the chapter, in the first three or four verses, and it talks about the Amalekites, how they attacked the Israelites when they're vulnerable, and they've got no defenses, and they have no land, they have no walls, and they're just sort of wandering out there in the wilderness, and they attacked, and God is now exacting his judgment on them. And he says, so I want you to go down there, and I want you to wipe everybody out. And so Saul takes his army down there, and he begins the attack,
It says that Saul defeated the Amalekites in verse 7. From Havilah, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. He took King Agog of the Amalekites alive. But he utterly destroyed all of the people with the edge of the sword. Saul and the people spared Agog, and notice this, the best of the sheep, of the cattle, of the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was valuable, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, all that was despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. They kept all the good stuff for themselves, which they weren't supposed to do. And the other thing is that Saul made the decision to leave King Agog alive as a, a, a captured king, a, a prized trophy of war. Uh, there was a, a, a guy at uh, Summer Celebration, uh, a, a Jewish man, He's a Jewish scholar, and he spoke on the first night, and his name, was, uh, his name is Joseph uh, Shulam. And he pointed out to us that one of the unwritten rules of, of warfare during this time is don't kill someone else's king. Saul evidently followed this rule to his, to his own detriment. And it was because Saul did that, because Saul chose to A, disobey another direct command, but to alter the the word and the will of God, it is that reason right there that caused God to tell Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me. And he has not carried out my commands. And then in verse 26, it's just really a, a sad verse. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. You see, by conducting this raid as if it were ordinary warfare, Saul ends up you know, usurping a divine prerogative. He misrepresents the, the character of divine judgment, which, which doesn't privilege the, the powerful and the beautiful. Uh, one of the, the professors there at, at Lipscomb University, his name is Earl Lavender, he says this of Saul. He said, Saul, didn't, uh, or Saul allowed his power to become self-serving instead of God-honoring. Now that's an important lesson for us, isn't it? Because in some way, in some area of our life, it may not be much, but pretty much every person here has some power, Authority, say, influence, whatever you want to call it, in their life. Whether it be great or small, we have to make sure that it is not self-serving. We have to make sure that, that the ways that we use it are always, are always God-honoring. And then notice the, the end of the chapter, verse 35. The writer kind of ties everything back together. Samuel Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. 
And just like everyone else's king, Saul failed to honor God. And that's, a, that's a tragic story, is it not? That's a, that's a sad, sad story. For, for lots of different reasons, because you have this guy who was just, I mean, he, he, he was a, a pretty good guy. And he never asked to be the king. Okay? He never asked to be the king. He didn't campaign for it. He didn't run for office. He didn't kill somebody. He didn't ascend to the throne. He was plucked out of his life because he was taller than everybody else. Because he looked kingly. And he was given this awesome task of trying to lead a people. And he was given these commands, and, and for whatever reason, he, he disobeyed them. And, you know, you look at the things that he did, and then you look at the life of David, and you realize, wow, David, David really blew it. I mean, David got enthralled in his own lust, took another man's life, impregnated, impregnated her with life. concocted this ruse to make her husband come home from the battle and go sleep with his wife so that, you know, hey, that's not my baby, that's your baby. But Uriah the Hittite, he honored his king, honored David. He wouldn't do it. Even the next day when David tried to get him drunk, got him just absolutely sloppy, falling down drunk, thinking now he'll go home and he'll be with his wife, his integrity was stronger than his drunkenness. And he still would not do it. And so David signs a piece of paper, gives it to Uriah, has the audacity to hand it to Uriah and say, take this to the commander of the army. And so he does, and he opens it up, and it says, when the fighting is at the most intense and the most fierce, you put Uriah out there, and when it really gets bad, you withdraw the army and you make sure he's killed. Uriah is delivering, hand-delivering death sentence. And so that happens. And I don't know. Saul's stuff, oh, I mean, it's bad, but it doesn't seem as bad as that. The difference is, is that David, he fessed up his sin. If you read on, Saul continued to, to blame, but it's just this, this incredibly, incredibly sad story. And so now we have to ask ourselves, okay, so, so what, is this, what does this mean for us? You know, this story is not just, just in here. I mean, it records the history of Israel and the kings and all of this stuff. But I, I think that there is a purpose in this story for us, and it is it's this story that raises a question, and here's that question right here. How often do we know the will of God, but alter it to suit our own needs and desires? You ever thought about that? How often do we know the will of God, but alter it to suit our own needs and desires? Now then, let's, let's set aside the, the issue of holy war for a moment. The issue for us 
as for Saul, is obedience. So what happens when we know the will of God but fail to do it, or even worse, we only do the parts that are convenient or or, or self-serving? Anybody guilty of that one? I am. I'm guilty of that. I think Paul understood that. I think that's why in Romans chapter 7, he said, For I do not do the good I want. You know, I know what's right. I know what's good. I know what God wants from me. But I don't do those things. But the evil that I do not want, that's what I do. You know, and I can, I can relate to those verses. You know, we can, we can fill in our, our own issues and, and experience. But most of us, if, if we are really honest, most of us, if we are really honest, we know how easy it is to make our own adjustments to what we know God is demanding of us. We want to honor God, but we want to do it in our own way. Maybe not God's way. And so we make our adjustments to what we think His, His, His will is. You know, uh, when, when, um, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, he was, he was certain, he was certain that he wanted obedience. Until Jesus told him to go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That's, that's not the obedience that, that he had in mind. You see, while I, while I have said that, that I don't believe that I can live a life without regrets, that doesn't mean that I can't try. Does that make sense? Just because we live a life, and we might look back, and we might have some regrets in there, just because we have regrets doesn't mean that we cannot start in this very minute to try to live from this day forward without regrets. In in Matthew 25, in Matthew 25, I I think we are, I think we're given a a glimpse of those who who will have regrets. When you read that passage, you know, it's kind of talking about maybe some of the criteria for the judgment. And I think the ones who have regrets... They're the ones who saw the the hungry and thirsty and offered nothing. They're the ones who who didn't welcome the stranger or, maybe in our context, the refugee. They're the ones who, who didn't clothe those in need of clothing. They're the ones who who knew that there were people that were sick and knew that they were people that were in prison and yet they did not go and and visit them. You see, but for us, for those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ, while yes, while we can agree that probably most of us have some regret in our life, just like Saul, it doesn't mean we have to stay in that regret. Saul stayed in that position. 
we can live differently. And I think one of the ways to live a life that at least puts us on the path of no regret is to do the exact opposite of what those people were doing. When we see those who are hungry and thirsty, we offer something. We welcome the stranger. We clothe those that need clothing. We visit those who are sick. We visit those that are imprisoned. And maybe not just physical prison, but spiritual prison. And I think when we begin to do this, this is how we can begin to live a life without regret. There's a, a man by the name of, of Bruce Birch, a scholar, and, and this is what he says. He said, when we read the rejection of Saul for his failure to do what he knew was demanded of him by God's command, we can sympathize with him and the high price paid for a few alterations in carrying out the command. But if we choose to follow his path and, and make our own alterations in what we know God is asking of us in obedience, then we had better look over our shoulders occasionally for, for the approach of a Samuel. Following Jesus is not an easy thing, right? It, it's not an easy thing. Anybody that says that may not really be following too closely because it's, it's not an easy thing. It's a life of sacrifice. It's a life of, of serving. It's a life of, of, of giving of yourself and putting others before ourselves and our needs and our wants and our desires. It, that's how we do these things that we read about in Matthew 25. Okay, if we're supposed to love God with everything we've got and love the world as we love ourselves, then, you know, it's, it, that's not an easy thing to do. But that's what Jesus asks of us. And while that sounds like, you know, on, on the front end, that might sound, and especially if you've never considered Jesus, that might sound like a lot. But not when you think about what Jesus did. Because of His grace, any regret that we have in our life can be completely wiped out. Because of, uh, of His grace, every time we've blown it, every time we sin, every time we mess up, can be completely removed. Because of the, the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ, because of His, of his death for our sins, and because of his resurrection, we get to be a part of the kingdom of God. We get to go and spend eternity with God and his son in heaven. And when, then, when, I, when I think about what has been given for me, what has truly been done for me, then it's... it's it becomes not so much about making sure I obey, 
It's almost my obedience becomes my will. Because this is what's been done for me. Man, let me serve. How could I not serve? How could I not love people? How could I not sacrifice? How can I not put others first when Jesus did that for me? And if there is such a thing of living a life with no regret, that's it. It's a life lived. A life lived with Jesus. We all have sin, we know it. We all have regret, or we might have regret. But one of the incredible things about this is, and we read about this in Scripture, and you're fixing to hear more about it in, in, in just a minute. In Romans 5, Paul writes, and he says that while we were still sinners, in other words, while we, can't, we haven't got our life together yet, Christ died for us. Isn't that good news? Even though you can't get your life together, you can't get your act right. Okay, Jesus didn't wait for us to get it right and then say, okay, there's salvation. He knew we couldn't get it right without Him. So while we were still sinners, while we were still making choices that we might come to regret, Christ died for us. He died for us. Let's pray together. Oh God, you...